Welcome to the Technicolor Postcast. I'm Joe Lister, your London host, and today I'm joined by Technicolor VFX executive producer Kate Warburton, VFX supervisor Nicholas Bennett, and special guest VFX supervising producer Simon Frame to discuss their work on Armando Iannucci's comedy drama Avenue 5. Some of Simon's recent credits include Britannia Series 1, Little Women, and Then There Were None, and You, Me and the Apocalypse. Some of Kate and Nick's recent credits include Avenue 5, The Crown, and Gentleman Jack. Avenue 5, episodes 1 to 9, are all available to watch on HBO and Sky One. So thank you everybody for joining me today. Hi Joe. How is everyone? We are relaxed. Relaxed <laughs> now. Ready to do a podcast? We hope so. Yeah. Okay, amazing. So an exciting topic, Avenue 5. Uh, before we get into the project, I just wanted to first start by asking you all how you got into the VFX industry. Simon, Nick, I know you guys have been going for a while. Um, so do either one of you guys want to kick us off? Uh, well, I'm the eldest. So we're doing um, age before I'm, beauty. Is yeah, that what we're I'm doing? the greyest. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I've been in it pretty much since its infancy. I uh, started in um, live action and uh, making pop videos. Uh, producing pop videos, art directing pop videos, back in the heady days of the eighties, um, <laughs> and um, and then basically uh, got into animation production by a series of uh, unfortunate events and surfing holidays, and um, produced animation for around eight or nine years, uh, traditional animation, and then what became the new world of digital uh, composition in animation. So that by the time I get to nineteen ninety seven. And 98, uh, I, I've kind of been around the block with how we multi-layer images together using Quantel Henry's and Quantel Harry's and paint boxes and things like that. Um, and then I was approached out of the blue to, to head up a, a very new and uh, sort of bleeding-edge boutique called Men in White Coats. And they had just done a film called Elizabeth, Shaky Kapoor's Elizabeth, which had around 64 digital effect shots in it. And we're going back to an era where... Very few films had any digital effects at all. So um, I, I joined them and I headed that company for a couple of years. And uh, and then uh, and then we all left and started our own company, Men From Mars. And so I led that for 10 years. And really, that was from 2000 to 2010 when we sold the company, uh, doing the rump of, of the growth of digital visual effects. So when I started in around 97, I think there was around about 350 people that you could put in a room who actually worked in digital film somewhere along the line. Now, I mean, scanning, recording, shooting it back out of film again, digital effects compositing, miniatures guys, you know, about 350. And now, well, certainly in the audit that was done around 2010-11 by the government, it was about 7,500 people now in the business. So it, it really has exploded. So uh, I find myself now kind of a sort of old man, really, uh, now dealing with whole shows on my own, um, free of the burdens of my company, uh, which I enjoy. But uh, it all started really with animation, because really, at the end of the day, that's kind of what we do still. Nick, you're an old man, but not that old. <laughs> He's looking good for his age. He's a slightly lesser old man. Not that far behind you, I don't think. Um, I got into the business completely by accident. I was, um, I was about to do my teacher training, and I was going to teach maths and physics, and somebody asked me if I wanted a job at a post-production company just for a couple of weeks as a runner, and um, that was it. I went in 
saw this kit and it was it was in about i don't know early early 90s when all the digital henry's quantel paint box all that kind of thing was happening and um it was a world that i didn't know existed and soho seemed like an exciting place and uh i thought oh i like this I'm gonna, <laughs> you just I'm never gonna, left <laughs> yeah pretty much I, I, trajectory to maths and completely different yeah from being a but teacher it, it was so hip though I mean I, at the, around that time my mum said you've got to go for this interview at the Wellcome Foundation because they're looking for a videographer and you've got a video <coughs> degree so why don't you go to this Wellcome thing so I trolled out to Dartford right and I went to the factory and I had this interview to be the videographer for the Wellcome Foundation now looking at it now as I do as an adult um, that's a great job a great job I mean you were the, the guy shooting videos for this massive global corporation all around the world. I mean, what an exciting job. No wonder my mum said, do it. You know, I took one look at the factory and I thought, I can't work here. <laughs> it's got pipes coming out of the ground. And I'd been in Soho, which was achingly hip in the early 90s and, and just brilliant and offices where people came in in shorts and we all went down to pub at lunchtime. And I mean, it's quite addictive. Nick's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I was born in the 90s, so I can't speak to any of that. But I, I was the same with Nick. I fell into it completely accidentally. I did that thing where you leave uni, you're not really sure what you want to do. Kind of thought I wanted to be in physical production, applied for every single job, got some work experience. And then through that, I got a load of interviews, mostly with post houses, one of which being a small boutique VFX house. And I kind of got that job and then thought I'd be there for like a year get something on my CV. You know, I didn't even know what a DPX was. I'd sort of sit there just kind of answering emails, being like, I have no idea what any of you are talking about. Um, and then, yeah, just never left. That was about five years ago. And I've just kind of stayed. And then... You were a monkey earlier than that. No, five years... Well, five and a half. It was five years in September I joined Wow. Monkey. Sorry, I, I, that's a vested interest here. I've known Kate literally since, since the first the beginning. Month, since the beginning. Yeah. Um... I thought, I just guess to show my age, I thought it was far longer than that. <laughs> no, um, it was yeah. September well, what, what 2014 a, a was when I joined Monkey. Oh my God, that was after Da Vinci's we were doing Yeah, it. I didn't... And I, then there were none. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, it was a bit, yeah, it was around before then. Before that, yeah. Yeah, it was before, a bit before and then there were none. But oh that was, I think, probably the first project you brought well, to Monkey. can I just say, what an amazing trajectory for young Kate Warburton here. <laughs> That's you can edit that out That's if you want. That's all. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Amazing. <laughs> On the, on the topic of um, kind of this trajectory and journey, what would you say, I mean, I'm sure you'll have different perspectives on this, but what would you say the biggest changes are that you've all seen, I guess, since, since starting out? From a production point of view, I started on like shared Google Docs, you know, literally just like tracking shots manually. And that, I mean, that's mostly because we were a smaller company, um, but now, you know, we fully work in a shotgun integrated pipeline and actually Simon was the first person that bought shotgun to us and we he was like oh you should really look into this tool like it's actually quite helpful and we were like yeah cool and then we kind of just use it as an exaggerated google doc it's just like a shot tracking tool and it was really when we came to tech um and sort of had the resource and the knowledge to build on that that it became a natural you know when Nick and I did Britannia, which is our first big project together. Oh, I know. We, I would literally give him a handwritten list of shots to pull in for dailies for when Simon would come in and he would manually do all of our deliveries. And all of that is so um, automated and integrated now. So the thought of actually like giving Nick a handwritten note 
for like shots to pull in feels so foreign. And that was only, I think when was Britannia? Two years ago? Three, three years three ago? Years ago wasn't it? Yeah. Well, Coming on to three years ago. Yeah. So it's really not that Technology and far away, but it, yeah, it was a completely different workflow. Yeah. Like massively so. I think for me, um, having seen it since it's pretty much germination, I think it's the, uh, the departmentalization of the roles. I mean, when I started, and really pretty much through the noughties, we were a, a sort of boutique kind of industry, you know, where everyone had to have multi-skills. Now, it's much more structured. I've got VFX PAs, I've got VFX coordinators, I've got VFX production managers. They all do different levels of job. Um, and they're all very good at it, and it's all great. Um, but in the old days, we'd, we'd have all just kind of mucked in and done it. And now it's much more structured. It's a proper, proper business. And people spend years being PAs and years being coordinators and years being, uh, you know, PMs. Which is why, in many ways, Kate's trajectory is, is I, su I suppose, in some ways, a bit of the last of the, last of the mavericks. Because, you know, now if you're in a big company uh, like DNEG or Cinesite or, 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 or MPC, it takes you years to do what Kate's doing. Years. Now, that's no bad thing in some ways because you get to know really what you're doing. But, um, uh, and Kate, obviously. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, your exposure to learning is much more limited because it's much more structured. But then, you know, as I found on Avenue 5, uh, we started off with 800 shots intended and we've ended up with 2,147. You can't do 2,147 shots in 14 and a half weeks unless you have a department. It's an army. I'm sorry, it just is, you know. And, uh, and that requires people who are used to filling certain roles. And so the departmentalization of the VFX business, I think, is a brilliant thing. It allows London and our business to do really big shows in the way that the Americans uh, would kind of laugh at us in the noughties, like, well, you could never handle something like that. And now we do. It's interesting you mentioned London. So the next question I was going to springboard off that is, do you, do you believe that Soho is still, and this is a question for the room, still the heart of uh, the UK's VFX scene? What do you think you've seen? Soho? Yeah, London. Good Lord, yes. I mean, I would, I would go as far as to say it's pretty much, I think it's number one in the world. I don't think LA can really hold it to us. LA have big barns full of thousands of people on separate discrete companies. I think what we have in London is universally acknowledged around the world to be the most flexible and creative yeah. uh, post-industry in the world. I mean, Nick, what do you think? Definitely. I think Soho's still the heart. I mean, like more, more and more you can work elsewhere now. It's, I mean, the, all the... Technology is easier to shift around, and we don't need to be tied to enormous computers now. You can run most things off a off a laptop, but th there's still something here. I, I'm not not sure what it is. It's uh, oh, it's smell. It's, well, it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's networking. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, you, you know, can't you can't do a show like Avenue Five and have four vendors in completely different parts of London or even completely different parts of the UK because Simon needs to be able to walk between places all day, drop in. You know, it's and you can't do that if you've if you've got vendors, if all of your vendors are remote or all of your, even if all of your vendors are in the UK, but not in London. And even if you had three vendors in Shoreditch and two vendors in Soho, that's a huge amount of time for Simon. Oh, nearly killed me on the other show. Yeah, yeah. because it, it, <coughs> who's great idea is it to go to Hackney? Yeah, Can exactly. Please? It's very trendy, but at the same time, everything else is happening in Soho. So that's a, you have to schedule that more directly than just being like, I can just pop into tech and just have a look at their shots well that's a, it's an interesting point to, to raise about talent and global location um a lot of this show was done in canada avenue five for uh, executive production reasons canada does not have a flexible 
working freelance force at all. It has a lot of set companies who who uh, develop a lot of work and then process a lot of work. Um, next Thursday, or this Thursday, sorry, I will be personally hosting a thank you drink to all the artists in London who've worked on this show, in fact, all around the world who can make it. And there's hundreds of them, right? And they're all going to meet in a pub and we're all going to have a drink and say thank you. And those artists are going to bounce off each other. And at the end of the day, the root of all this work is talent. So it's all very well to, to have sort of the engine of, of, of your production, like in Montreal, which is great. But, you know, you've got to book that in. And that Montreal talent has a certain base of talent, and that's it. It's cracked out. London seems to expand. It seems to expand and accommodate anything. So when one company's kind of really bleeding for people, other people will gravitate towards it. When another company doesn't have a lot of work and they want to release some people because, you know, it's a lot of money to keep people on in central London, then they'll be happy to see them go and then come back. And this is how the, the sea of London works, you know. Um, it makes it a very, very flexible place to do business because you don't have to book stuff in, whereas in other places around the world, New Zealand's a good place, Australia's a good case in point, and Canada, you've got to book it in. If you don't book it in, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And that's because there's no flexible workforce, you know. Which as a producer is really true because I spent time in a Toronto office last year and um, I sort of went there thinking I was there to sort of help set up Avenue 5, basically, because I knew that we were going to be working on it together. And, you know, whenever I crew up for shows, I do it with the knowledge that I'm going to be able to bring in freelancers, that I've got a big pool of people that I can bring in for one month or three months or even just, like, two weeks um and i got to canada and they were like oh well, we don't operate like that you know you get minimum three-month contracts and it's there's very it's very few and far between in terms of talent that can come in and i that just completely threw off how i plan for shows because it's just not the market that i'm used to operating in um and it just completely gets rid of a lot of flexibility that we have here but in which is why London. you know whilst acknowledging workers rights and i like the structure of workers rights and how they work london is genuinely a global powerhouse because uh, we can adapt. We can adapt. Someone, someone can get a big show in, and we all kind of get leap towards it. it. It's you know, and as someone has to deal with big shows and shot counts explode out of nowhere. I needed uh, on uh, February, uh, November the eleventh. I needed nine hundred shots. Uh, I needed those shots between mid December and the end of January globally. So I pick up the phone and have an awful weekend ringing everybody in the globe. I need nine hundred shots to complete my show. And uh, ultimately, ultimately, where did they come from? They came from London, actually, at the end of the day. I did. I parked quite a bit in, in Montreal, but the reality was, actually, London stepped up. And, you know, it was London, India, Pipelines, it was other vendors, uh, and, and Technicolor London stepped up because they could, uh, whereas it's very hard to park that. You, you, you're shaking the system to, to get on the phone and talk to L.A. or talk to Canada or Vancouver or Australia. Or, I was on the phone to everybody saying, guys, I need 900 shots. And they're like, mm, I can't help it to mid-Feb. It's like, it doesn't help. Yeah. So for those that haven't seen Avenue 5 and on the topic of, of, of big shows, um, can Simon, do you want to give us an overview of, of what the series is about? Yeah, Avenue 5 is a uh, comedy drama set on a spaceship. Uh, it, it, it could be on any island, really. The spaceship is merely a, a vehicle. But it could have been on an island, it could have been on a cruise ship. But Armando decided to put it in space because there's something kind of futuristic and funny happening in the SpaceX and Virgin Galactica world that interested him. But it isn't really a space show at all. In fact, we deliberately went out to not make it a space show. It's a, uh, it's a Poseidon adventure, basically, set, set uh, on, on a minor sort of world 
where people start to lose their shit, basically. Um, the, the basic McGovern is it's all going very well. It's an eight-week cruise around Saturn uh, to see the rings of Saturn. Uh, but then they lose gravity. They don't lose gravity. Gravity shifts from the ground to the right-hand side for around 26 seconds, which is what sets up episode one. And uh, everyone flies to the far wall. A couple of people get really seriously hurt. A couple of people die. Um, and, uh, and everyone, 26 seconds later, slumps to the ground from the wall, uh, which is really funny, and I'm quite proud of the working episode when we did for that. Uh, but it knocks the ship off course by, like, uh, 2.31 degrees or something like that. And uh, they work that out, that now instead of taking eight months, it's going to take three years or something to get back round the system because essentially the ship isn't really like a craft. It's like a massive big cigar that's been launched and it does its orbit via a series of slingshots around planets. So it can't really steer and it can't really power itself. So they, they realise they're in for the long haul and therein the comedy ensues. And there's lots of projects out there. What would you say the creative vision was that Armando set for this? Well, I think uh, 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 Armando is a, a guy who deals with situational stress. Uh, if you look at all his work, um, even even David Copperfield, which is an interesting study, in, in, in a beautifully observed study in situational stress about our lead protagonist, David Copperfield, um, uh, in his last film. But in his television work, he, he deals with situational stress, whether it's Veep or in the thick of it. He deals with, with stressful situations where people are standing in a room shouting at each other. Death and, of Stalin. Death of Stalin, again, same thing again. He, he's good. He, that's his, um, that's his uh, world in which he, he knows very well. So he, I think he was drawn to this kind of idea because essentially... You know they're going to start eating each other, and that's quite funny, actually. And uh, what what transpires is quite funny in a way that I could never have possibly imagined. Um, and he likes containment, and and you need to contain people on, on on something. In in all his shows, they're contained in their situation, and on this show, in space, they are completely contained, uh, and they can't get off. And uh, although some people in the later episodes, spoiler alert. I was going to say, come on now. They, they try and think it's, they think it's a reality TV show and try and escape. Um, so I think what attracted him is that he's finding another, another environment in which to put these basically situational stress comedy situations. And how big a role would you say visual effects plays in the development of that world and that story? Well, we started... I mean, I must be candid. I, I read quite a lot of the episodes very early on I've been on the show for a very long time nearly two years and uh, at the very beginning uh, I said to myself well th this is not a VFX show this is a comedy show uh, we just play a secondary role in setting the scene obviously we're in space so obviously we have to set a scene but uh, it wasn't really about the VFX it, it, it's not a VFX show uh, that said uh, the way Armando started to see things was, was really played into the hands of, of, of VFX to make things really sort of happen. So the loss of gravity is a good example. Like, how do I show that? I mean, I've got to show it. Episode one, it sets up the whole series, both series one and two and three and four and five, or however many series you're going to make. It sets the whole gag up, right? Uh, so that's got to be executed in, uh, in a way. There is a spaceship in space. We've got to see that. So that's clearly there. But essentially what, what came out of it were multi-level effects uh, in the series in a way that I... I honestly didn't really anticipate. Uh, I knew we'd have a spaceship. I knew we had gags. On top of all this, there are a lot of information screens by which Armando tells gags and story points. 
So there's a lot of those in, in the show. Uh, then there's like discrete gags, like loss of gravity in the kitchen with floating fruit and things like that. And, and there's others that come along, uh, people rushing into the airlock and thinking they're going to go into the green room in two seconds and freezing to death. There's, um, there's a leak in the side of the ship uh, with shit coming out because, well, this is absolutely true. Apparently all spaceships uh, use their human excrement as a, uh, an anti-radiation shield to the sun. And so they, uh, uh, the entire ship is kind of covered in these pipes and one of them splits and shit starts to leak out into the atmosphere. And, of course, it freezes instantly. It goes from 21 degrees centigrade to minus 273. And so it freezes instantly and becomes a kind of cat litter. Like a kind of cat litter effect. And that starts circulating the ship because the ship is so big, it has its own uh, gravitational pull, which is a, a gag we set up in episode two, two I believe, yeah, in the coffins. Um, people die and they, 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 they don't fly from the space, they start circling the ship. So, this idea that, that you're creating your own mess and you're creating your own problems circulates the ship. And, uh, and so, um, you know, from that, you, you, know, you, you get ideas that now there's a huge ring of shit circulating <laughs> the ship. And then, and then people start to. Uh, uh, people start saying, well, this is really boring and horrible. I don't want to see shit outside my window because they paid for a very expensive space cruise. So uh, the lead protagonist, Judd, decides to light it up with lasers. Now it's laser-lit shit, and it's <laughs> looked like a, some crazy prog rock concert, and it's amazing. And then people start to see the, the face of um, John Paul II, the Pope, in the ship because it passes every 90 minutes like clockwork. You know? And you can see where this is going. Right? It's getting slightly unhinged as a series. Well, it's a huge series, and lots of people worked in it. We have technical of VFX in the room. Can we, I guess, talk a little bit about when you guys first got involved? Uh, well, I mean, like Simon said, he was on it for a really long time before it actually sort of became a tangible thing. So, I mean, I remember getting scripts maybe like a year and a half ago, I'd say, probably first time, because, you know, it kind of was going and then there was this, like, pause as all these things do, and then they kind of came back. So, I mean, we started work September last year. Maybe like August, August, yeah, August. But we, you know, we'd we'd been to visit Simon up on the set at Leavesden, and we'd been sort of doing conversations with him and our Canadian team, sort of way before that. So it's been it's been quite a long time, really. Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, I I hugely rate Nick and Kate and their team. So uh, after Britannia season one, uh, and I started season two, and then left season two to start Avenue Five. Um, I, I was extremely keen to, to reconnect with any work I might be doing on my next series. So that's the first point. Second point is that uh, Technicolor uh, globally were doing the post on the show. And, and uh, uh, rightfully so, an amazing job. And with the heritage of Veep and HBO, HBO's confidence, uh, that was a no-brainer. So for me, it was very easy to turn to HBO and say, well, actually, this, this is great, if you don't mind, because I know, I know that uh, Technicolor London are posting the show. Uh, but I'd also like to use Technicolor London VFX, if you don't mind, because we've worked together on numerous shows in the last yeah. three or four years. And I, as I said, I, I know them very, very well. And uh, and they've built an amazing outfit here in London over the last four or five years, genuinely, uh, from right from the, uh, the early adoption of Monkey right through to what you've got today. So uh, it was an easy sell for me to the production, say, if you don't mind, I'd like to use these guys here. Uh, so I was very aware that the production schedule on, on Avenue 5 was going to be extremely tight in post-production. I could smell it, I could see it on, on the paper, and I realised very early on that we were not in an 800-shot show. We were in a much bigger show than this. Therefore, uh, as 
any good producer, I, I made it my business to to effectively book them and say, right, guys, you know, you've got to be aware this is uh, this is coming down the line any minute now. So you know, and it's going to look like this. And so, so from around April last year, was it last year? Got it? Last year? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. last year. April, April nineteen. I was dialing Kate into the scripts. I was dialing her into what we were doing. And then while we were shooting, I was bringing them up. And it's very difficult because, you know, there's nothing immediately to do, but uh, but they needed to prepare themselves for the onslaught that happened. Yeah, you need that prep time to, to know what the show is so that when Simon comes to you with a locked or not locked in this case, but a nearly locked, you know, episode, you can just get on and bid it and do it. I think if you're brought in cold once they're editing it takes you a little bit longer to get into that kind of like right this is the show this is the vibe this is what the work's going to be but being brought in from a script stage and you know making sure that your creative like Nick has all the scripts and that he's seen the set and that you know I've seen the set we you just kind of know what's coming at you basically so when you're planning for it and when Simon's saying this is going to be a lot of work you kind of understand it because you've seen it rather than just you know, because people tell you that all the time and then they turn, you know, they turn around and give you like 30 shots and you're like, well, that's not that big and scary. But so if you see the size of it and you see the context of it and you've read the scripts, you know, and like he was saying, even though it was a comedy show that happened to be set in space, it's still set in space. So, you know, it's going to be something that requires a lot of VFX support. And Simon was very open from the beginning that because Technicolor London were doing the post, he was going to see us as someone that would absorb a lot of the overage and a lot of stuff that was going to be coming in last minute because we were all in the same building and it just makes it so much easier for him and for the guys in the online and the grade because we're in the same building and yeah exactly and you know Simon can come in he can look at stuff on one floor he can go down and do a EXR review on another floor he can go down to the grade on the first floor and he also benefited from our asset management tool Pulse he loves Pulse well I was an early adopter of Pulse (laughs) yeah uh, he's like his biggest fan early adopter Um, when he I I knew it was going on in the background for quite a few years and I I know what it's taken for technical to develop it and I I think it's uh, hugely huge respect to all the people who took the decision to do that and invest in it I know I know what it cost (coughs) and uh, very brave uh, but I, I totally bought it. And uh, I work with the same VFX editor, Christy Stoischer, who has been my right-hand man for about six years now. And uh, I, I have to be candid and say I won't do a show without him. I love Christy. Bit of a, bit of a deal great. breaker. <laughs> it is a deal breaker uh, for me uh, because he brings to his role a vast understanding and Yoda-like kind of knowledge of, of all sorts of areas to do with the wider production um, and and has helped me enormously. And so I explained, after I'd been given the first inkling of what was happening with Pulse, uh, to Christy, and he goes, oh, you've got it, you know, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to get hold of that. That's going to be a game changer. So we got hold of it. Did we do that on um, Little Women? I think Little... No, we didn't. No, I don't no, think we, we did Little Women. It was during Little Women, that's right. And then I, when I when I knew yeah. it was kicking off, into, yeah. Because you set it up for Britannia Series 2. I did. I did. This is when it came online, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. we didn't use it for this. Well, Little Women wasn't big enough, really, was it? But no. I think it was still quite early. So yeah. this is the first show that we've done it with you, Yeah. with Pulse. I mean, we've used it, obviously, loads of times before, and it is one of the greatest things. Can I ask, what, what would you say are the benefits from your, from your perspective? Well, it's a no-brainer. I mean... Uh, let's just take a show like Little Women, uh, which had, what, uh, 380 shots, would you say? Yeah, three um, max. You know, in the, uh, in the general admin 
of, of VFX turnover. Uh, I go to I go to my editor, uh, Christy, and we sit down and we identify the shots and we and they lock the picture and we know what shots we want to pull. So we get our EDL together and we send over our quick time and our EDL to to the post house. And then we ask them to pull the following shots. And some poor monkey in the post house has to get the EDL, import it, look at the stuff, get down, offload it, check it, check it again, and then send us back what we think we want. No, they don't send us. They send to our to our vendor companies, who could be any VFX company in the world, uh, the, the actual sort of, uh, you know, uh, DPXs or, or DXRs or whatever file type we're using at the full fat. We then get a quick time of what they've been sent. Now, there's, this is error strewn all the way along the way. There's errors from VFX editorial. There's errors in the pulling technique in, in the post house. Technical over anybody. And also it can take weeks or well, at least a week. week. It, takes around, it takes around 24 to 48 hours to pull 75 shots. Yeah. So, and that's so we're only saving, if that, you know, that, 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 that has time. time. You can refocus that time on other things. Well, it's vital. I mean, I, I, I know it's just 75 shots. If I'm turning over, if I know that I'm going to give Cinesite 250 shots, that's a three or four day turnaround at, at a previous post house manually. So overnight, we looked at this and went, wow, that, that's brilliant. If that works, right, if it works, this is going to be amazing. It's a game changer for our business because not only do we effectively do the pulls, but we get to see exactly at the point at which they download exactly what they've got because here's how it works, right? You say, uh, oh, I need uh, 50 shots to go to vendor X, Okay, and the post house runs away and says, yeah, it's fine, we've done it. Uh, and you say, can we see quick time? And they go, oh, yeah, sure, here's the quick time what vendor X has. And you look at the quick time and you go, oh, something wrong with that. So you say to vendor X, vendor X, did you get blah? And they go, oh, I don't know, I'm going to import it, yeah? This is days, right? This is going like day three, right? And you go, well, can you have a quick look, please? Because we think we've looked at the quick time, we think they've pulled the wrong bit. They being the house that's got the, the major data, right? And the vendor X goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, they have, actually. Yeah, that's fantastic. Can you let them know? So, and we say, oh, yeah, we'll let them know. So we get back in time to the post. So I say, sorry, of the 75 shots, 25 are wrong. You, you pulled the wrong bit. Or, or there was an error. Or there was an EDL error that nobody picked up on the way. It's not just all the fault of the house. And it goes round and round and round and round. And there's another offload and then another resubmission and this this thing like takes five days by now like the vendor's going well we want to start that and then the vendor's saying to me well we're supposed to start on monday now we're starting on friday so it's going to cost extra now i'm and that I go, person saying that to simon by the way being like well you told me i had my plates now and we only have them here and and i think being in tech i think has really taught me why those things take time like it gives you such a big understanding because when we were just a vfx vendor you would just be like well why aren't they giving us our pulls like this is ridiculous but obviously like if something's wrong you know our di producers our broadcast producers have to then book someone to go and do it and that takes time you know they might be scheduled on something else so you've got simon sat, sat there screaming for plates and i'm sat there screaming for plates there's no one that can actually physically pull them because they're not there but pulse it's just it's just done it's phenomenal it is genuinely the biggest game changer on our business in the last two years, I think. On the on the topic of the shots uh, that, that were pulled for the show, Nick, Kate, do you guys want to talk us through a little bit about the, the 2D and CGV effects that you worked on? Nicholas? Hmm. Um, many windows looking out <laughs> into space. Yeah, we was, love a window. Was, was the quite a lot of the, the bulk of the work, which was quite interesting, trying to get a, a believable look for the stars. Um, the only reference material you've got for that is other sci-fi movies and shows, really. Nobody's... He gave you a starscape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
that was it was quite a challenge get, getting that to look right but i think we we um we we pulled it off in the end and it's 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 putting stuff in there to just try and blend into the background not to go hey look at me vfx i think if it's if they just if you see a view out of the window and it's a starscape and you don't look at it then i think we've we've done our job well um then there were the the, the cgi coffins which were quite fun to do for the for the dead members of the crew <laughs> circling the ship. You're going to have to put a spoiler warning on this because there's so many spoilers <laughs> for what's going up in these episodes. And then the dead people the dead that were people, put into food yeah. containers because there weren't any more coffins. We left all the morbid shots for you guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had a lot of we had a lot of death actually, didn't we? We didn't get to do the fun floating fruit. We just got to do the, or the coffins. Well, or we didn't get to do the poo. There no, is a strategy the behind that. I mean, Armando hones his comedy to within an inch of its life and. Scenes just do not lock. He's always searching for a funnier yeah. line, a funnier take. He's always searching to cut a little bit here, a little bit there. 20 frames here, 10 frames there. It, what looks effortless on screen has a huge amount of editing uh, uh, heritage behind it. As a result, it comes in very late. And because Technicolor were finishing the show, it made absolute sense to me to give them all the environments which were going to be sliced and sliced and sliced until the last minute. Because... It needed to be instant. So scenes with windows in, which are quite anonymous in the background, actually, from a VFX production point of view, are a nightmare. Because if I decide to do them in Montreal or whatever, then that's a 48-hour turnaround while you tell them that that shot's been cut down by 10 frames because he's decided to re-edit that line. Or, or actually what normally happened was a complete replacement because yeah. what he doesn't do is he doesn't trim lines. He just trim. He replaces takes. He... When we shoot the scenes, the actors are so hot. They're so on it. They're so on the ball. I mean, this is Hugh Laurie and Zach Woods Rebecca and Frank. Josh Gad and Rebecca Front. I mean, yeah. these, these are, they are white hot when they're doing these scenes. And, and, and they do take after take after take. And each one is slightly different. And each one's really funny. And you're laughing all the time on set. And Armando takes all that and he, he squeezes it down, squeezes it down from what was like a three-minute scene into like a 40-second scene. It's like this, 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 this. So what he tends to do is replace entire takes. So there's no point, and we have to turn shots over because we can't wait, right? Because yeah. he's pushing it to the wire. So I turn over, say, 30 shots in a scene to these guys, um, and 10 of them will be complete retakes. So you need an operation that can suck it in and turn it around immediately, okay, in a continuity fashion, so that the stars look at it. It's only view out the window, but and it's not the main point of the shot, but it's still got to be made, and it's got to be turned over literally in 60 hours maximum. From the minute we go, oh, my God, he's changed the line. Bang. Yeah, and that's a real testament. I had to have to shout out to our producer Carl, who did the sort of the day-to-day -day management of the show, because yeah. you have a sh like the sheer number of shots. I think we end up like how many shots? Well, we end up delivering about nine hundred finals, but I think we probably worked on over a thousand shots because you have so many that you work on to about eighty percent, and then they just get cut, and then they just you know. Or you're, you've pretty much done it, and then the edit changes, and then you're throwing it away. So you have got huge numbers of shots to track. You're, you know, Nick working on multiple projects, so he's just sitting down and being like, "Right, what am I looking at? <laughs> what what shot is this? Well, that wasn't the same shot as I looked at yesterday." And then you, you know, so you have to have people that know what's going on with those edits. And I mean, Carl was incredible. I've never seen anything 
like it really. Where's he was Cole? a machine. Why isn't he? Well, you know, he's cool. he's he's a bit mic shy, but he's too busy working on shots. He's too he is literally too busy so, delivering so he's, actually, show. he's actually currently in another VFX <laughs> review um, downstairs. So oh, okay. he is an absolute machine, and this show wouldn't have been done without him. So I just wanted to give him a shout out. One hundred yeah. Backed up by me and Tony and, and Faye. I mean well, Faye I on your say, side, yeah. Well, as I said, I started the show thinking it was about an eight hundred shot show. Set some various things in space. It was 10 episodes, 80 shots net, be fine. 2,147 shots later, 7,000 shotgun entries mm-hmm. later, right? Over 7,000 shotgun entries. Gives you an idea of where it kind of went skyrocketing. I had to, uh, in the middle of the show, I realized we were in a very, very difficult place. And I turned to HBO and said, I, I think we're in a difficult place here. This is, um, this is going, this is going skyward and the schedule is is kind of set in stone and they said well do you need any extra help and I said well I, I think we do so uh, I got a, a brilliant uh, young production manager out of uh, DNA called Faye Hancocks who very very gratefully came uh, and worked with me on the show and between Faye and Carl I can safely say genuinely say mm. they, they delivered the show I mean yeah. uh, it's easy for me to take the credits but in truth it's their it's their graft yeah, Their Simon and I are sort of fanning around having big picture conversations about budget and schedule. He just he just gets pushed from review room to review room. I mean, he's very good at, you know, but the day-to-day, like, the grift of it. And even Nick, I mean, Nick knows every shot that he's looking at, but he's told when and where to be. And yeah. So then how does that work in terms at? of your kind of relationship with all of these people in the background that are working tirelessly and then your kind of working relationship with um, with Simon? I'm kind of bouncing between the two, really. I'm, I'm in the studio on the floor with the artist's like helping push it along with and them. that's the role of the VFX supervisor. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about trust. Simon needs to trust that Nick knows what he's looking at because Nick is the last pair of eyes before Simon sees it. And it's a waste of Simon's time if we're just putting anything in front of him. So there, there has to be that level that Simon is like, if, if Nick's showing me this, then it's, it's worth me mm. seeing, which I think you've got to that point because you've worked together so often that you can do that. And I, you know, that's because Nick doesn't, to my frustration as a producer, Nick doesn't put anything in front of Simon unless it absolutely is ready to go. So he will hold on to stuff until it's, you know, where it should be. Without too much noodling. Without too much noodling. <laughs> you do like a little bit of noodling, but with very minimal. Little noodling. Well, which makes the process, from my point of view, uh, much easier. I just have to sort of put this into perspective. Uh, we had uh, six vendors on this show, and I'm spending most of my days walking up to 12 miles a day around Soho in mindless circles between vendor and vendor. <laughs> just, just wandering aimlessly. <laughs> Sadly not. I'm wandering yeah, with purpose and focus, usually very fast with a, a file under my arm, into various vendors. And therefore, my time in each vendor is, is by nature quite pressurised. Therefore, what I'm seeing in each vendor uh, is quite important because I don't have much time. And it's, it's terrible to say so, but I, I'd love to spend... You know, an hour chewing the fat with Nick. But each vendor's seriously under the cosh. They don't want to spend any longer with me than I want to spend with them. So when I come in, I just want to see what I need to see. I need to convert, if I can, 90% of what I'm seeing into forward EXR delivery or DPX delivery. Uh, There's no good showing me all the dirty washing. Not because I'm a big-time arsehole, but because there just isn't enough time. You know, I, I literally am in and out in what? 
30 minutes, 20 minutes. Sometimes, yeah. 40 Sometimes, minutes. Yeah. 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 It depends whether or not you're having sh- a nap on our review room floor. Sh- sh- <laughs> we get very tired. <laughs> it's very tiring. And, yeah. uh, a week after week, hour <laughs> after, 15 hours a day doing this. So, um, but it, what I can say is that I rely on Nick's eyes to focus what I need to come and see. And that role uh, is more special than you think from my point of view. Because I'm, and, and each vendor, to be fair, each vendor looks at their own patch. They don't know what else we're doing, really. They really don't know. So you have to respect each vendor's own approach and go, well, that's fine. I, I get that. But, but I, I'm handling, you know, I'm carrying on my shoulders these thousands of shots. And some of them are really tricky, some of them are really complicated, some might be easy, you know. And therefore, I, it, 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 you do feel a bit like a sort of government minister pimped out. You literally don't have time. You've got your 10 minutes of fame. Show me what you can do. Fantastic. Love it. Fantastic. Carry on. And the beautiful thing about working with Nick for so many years and Kate is that, is that I just know, coming into Technicolor's review room, that it's going to be an easy ride. I'm only going to see stuff that really is close to and or on the nail, and that's fantastic. Now, underneath the surface, of course, I'm sure Nick and Kate are having kittens about loads of shit going on underneath. And under, but that's not my problem. As a client, you know, I, I just need to see what I need to see and carry on, right? And for that, I need Nick's eyes. And it's strange. Other vendors don't have that. Other vendors don't have the eyes. And you find yourself, and I go back to the earlier question about London and why we're here, you tend to cling to people. In my position, you tend to cling to your mates or your your colleagues. Some of them, even my friends, don't even like some of them, but they've got great eyes, and I need them. I cling to them, and I kind of go, I'll do the job as long as James is on the show. I'll do the job as long as Zave's on the show, because basically, Zave doesn't waste my time. He gets what I want to see. I come in, I sit down, I want to see it. Again, it's not ego. We've given the briefing, and we all know what it's like to run VFX companies, and we know how hard it can be. A collection of 40, 50 artists, all got to be whipped into shape to, to deliver somebody's vision. And that vision is usually mine, and that vision has to be inherited by Nick. And Nick needs to say, no, no, he's custodian of the vision of the film, not just my vision, but Armando's vision, and and therefore it needs to look like this. And that is a honing process, and uh, it's 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 a it's a needs must basis when you're doing that number of shots in that short time. Yeah, I think that that passes down with my team as well. Or our, our team is that we get good artists, and I get artists that I've been working with for a long time. I cling on to them as well. Because I was going to ask you, you've done <laughs> yeah. lots of lots of you know freelance work as well. How does that kind of fit into kind of the way that you perceive jobs? I don't. Uh, you were mostly freelancing yeah, commercials, I'd, though, I'd, weren't I'd you? Yeah, I freelanced in commercials for, for for most of my life, so it's. Um, but I think what it has meant is that Nick has got a really good network of people that he knows. I mean, more so in the so you know who you flame side, yeah, yeah. But also, it just means that he's been exposed to lots of different clients and artists, and because that's the thing with VFX soups is that they, same as production, they have to really be that. G- bridge between being able to communicate things to the artist and then being able to communicate that to the client and that's quite tricky a lot of people a lot of really good artists can't do that and that's why they can't be soups you have to be able to look at stuff objectively and then be able to communicate feedback in a way that isn't because a lot of time it can feel demoralizing that you you get as well and yeah going isn't it exactly and present options so if a shot is is stuck you know a client doesn't like it and the artist doesn't have any options it's on Nick to be like, well, how about we try this? And that's that's not something that everyone can mm. do. And, you know, it's, I think you've been with us for three years? Yeah, just three years. And we're quite lucky in that we do have a lot of freelancers, but we have a lot of long-term freelancers. So, like, a lot of our team Nick has worked with for a really long time. And so they have that dialogue 
because you do need to be able, you you know, there's no room for egos no. on the vendor mm. side uh, uh, yeah, but, <laughs> of VFX. But th- th- this is also a very valid point about, I know, I know who Nick's got mm. working with him. And, and you know, ultimately, I'm the one whose ass is on the line, really. I'm the one closest to production. I'm the one that will, will have to answer for crap VFX. Um, vendors can hide behind their company status. They can hide behind all sorts of things. Or they, they go on to another job because they're a bigger company. On a personal level, professionally, I expose myself massively when I start a job. Therefore, like, like a, kind of a, a classic Hollywood kind of action movie, I, I find my team, you know. <laughs> I, I, I go out oh, to all Simon. the guys, you know, I'm going to go back to Nick. Nick is like, no, I am, I really, and, uh, and I make my, uh, my, my, I really uh, value that. And um, so I know Mark and all the other people behind you that you have, and, and when they leave and find other things, it's of interest to me because I want to find out who else is behind them. And uh, every time I work uh, with a technical team, there's somebody new I get to know, and that's really interesting and good, and Vanya, all these guys, really talented. They've got talents in their own way. It's not all about Nick. It's not all about Kate. It's actually about the team. And we know that. I know that in my game. And uh, we pick the teams. I go back to vendors around London and the world whose teams I trust. Because at the end of the day, Nick's not doing all the work. No. It's the team's doing the work. So so I get the fact that, that you know, Nick's exposed. Uh, after my exposure, we're all exposed, you know. And at the end of the day, it, it's a massive team effort. Massive team and effort. And that so. is actually, I, it's something that you ask me a lot when we're landing new projects. And it was sort of, you were kind of really the only person that asked me that, but you always say like, so who, who am I going to have on this? Who have you got pencil for this? Who's mm. your team? Um, not, I mean, a lot of people, a, a lot of shows, a lot of TV shows, especially don't have the benefit of having someone like, Simon, who is like an individual VFX contact on client side. Um, so a lot of PPSs, they don't really know or kind of really worry. They just expect me and Nick or whoever the pairing is to get it done. But because Simon has been on the facility side and obviously has done a lot of shows in his capacity, he is interested in that. And he's right. I mean, we do what we do. We facilitate but actually, if our artists aren't up to where they need to be, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And so Nick Nick can sort of mentor and guide and suggest and we can plan and bring people in and strategize. But if your artists aren't to the level that the show needs to be, you are always going to hit mm. a wall. Oh, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's all about delivery. And this show, Avenue 5, was all about delivery. Mm. There's so many massive shows coming through now and there's a there's an increasing demand for high level visual effects, not just for like tentpole theatrical releases, but for, for, for episodics. There's therefore, you know, a massive demand for talent. Um, what would your advice be to, to people starting out and, and where do you guys go about finding those those kind of people to build your teams? It's always the the question. I mean we do I generally rely on word of mouth. Some of our best freelancers have come from, oh, I'm not free, but this person's great. Um, or, you know, someone who's working there and being like, oh, I've just come off a job with this guy. There, you know, you should really bring them in. I think we've we've definitely got some of our best freelancers that way because you take a risk. You do take a big risk with new freelancers because you don't, their reel could be great, but it might not, you know, it's, it's the best bit. That's what they're doing. That's the point of that reel. And so, you know, it's a real, <laughs> it's been a mix as to the ones we've brought in and have just completely blown us away. And then the ones that we've had to very quickly been like, this is just isn't working for whatever reason. You know, it's not, it's not hard and fast. But 
Um, I mean, I can't speak for new artists because it's not my area and I don't know whether Nick has any top tips, but from a production point of view, making sure your reel is realistic, your rate is realistic for your level and, you know, being proactive. I use LinkedIn a lot. You know, people think that LinkedIn is just, you know, people just don't really use it. But for us, it's our first book was where we post all of our job postings. So if people contact me on LinkedIn, I'm quite likely to get back in touch with them, at least engage and sort of get them in for a chat. So, you know, definitely utilising things like that in terms of getting in touch with facilities. And it's back to the, the Soho word of mouth thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um... yeah within reason. I think um, from our point of view on the client end of things, um, uh, Match Move is the Cinderella uh, yeah. side of the business. And for me, in what I do, supervising and producing these big shows, um, it's actually the bedrock. I, I can't move without a data wrangler. You know, I, I can't turn up to a vendor five months later or seven months later after the shoot and the vendor says, so what lens was that then? I say, oh, I don't know. They just shot it. It was like handheld, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know, really. They just did it, you know. And and, and the vendor say, well, how do I track that then? I mean, where where is that plate? Because, again, going back to what I said at the beginning of the um, interview, uh, let's go back to animation, shall we? Let's just go back to what we do, which is, which is frame by frame, right? If the artist who deals frame by frame can't work out where the ground is, we're all in trouble. So for me, uh, the, the biggest sort of uh, growth area in some ways is data wrangling. And I was in a pub the other day. Uh, well, I was in a, <clears throat> an establishment the other day. <laughs> uh, and I was talking to the data wranglers from the Crown. And those guys, those guys are on £1,800 a week. I mean... Can we just stop and think about that for a minute? £1,800 a week is a phenomenal sum of money. I'm sorry, it just is. You you go to the rest of the country in the UK and you say to someone, I earn £1,800 a week, and and they will look at you like you are an alien, okay? Uh, not even senior teachers get that, right? Not even headmasters get that. So so let's just get real about where the industry is going at the moment. And the reason they're going at it is because, basically, the need for us in our business, for Kate and for Nick, more importantly, to know where is that camera, what is it? Where is it? Where is it moving? What is it seeing? What is its calibration? Where's the set? Where's the LIDAR of the set? How do I place it? How do I save money in match move? Because, because I've estimated, as Kate has done, three and a half days for this shot, and three days later, they can't even work out what the camera is. At that point, technical is losing money. End of. So, so this data wrangle, this front-end stuff, is a really kind of new world, and I'm trying desperately to get more people into it, because right now, Unless we can work out how to calibrate cameras and where they are, given the mobility of the camera now in modern day filmmaking, the people who are catching a cold are technical, who who budgeted three and a half days and took seven days. Well, sooner or later, with enough shots, someone in the bean counting office is going to say, hang on a minute, we thought we'd make this much money out of this show, and we only made this much money out of the show because basically it was all used up in Match Move. And Match Move is a like Cinderella department, but it's the bedrock of everything I do on set it just is to the point where my senior team now that I take with me on shows they bought their own LIDAR 12 grand they bought their own kit because we LIDAR everything and I work to the future my next flows with my next shows with Netflix and they they straight out ask me about virtual uh, production going forward and and what they mean by that is we don't want to go on a recce we want you to LIDAR all the recce so that we can do it a virtual reality back home in London, 
So the 57 people on the crew who would otherwise be on an easy jet flight flying to Seville to do the recce can see what you're doing. Well, on the topic of that virtual production, where, and this is maybe a question for everybody here, where, where do you see the VFX industry going from, from a technological perspective? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... You got me there, Joe. Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you. We're all going to exist virtually I, I, in some I cloud somewhere. Like, yeah, well, basically. No, years ago, people said, oh, my God, you know, uh, acting, uh, capture, motion capture is so brilliant now, facial capture is so brilliant now, we're in the actors. We're always in the actors. Oh, my God, you know, uh, 3D creatures are so amazing now, we can put them anywhere. Yeah, but we still have to know where they are. Yeah. Lenses don't change. And we made, uh, we made Avenue 5 shooting at roughly 800 to 1,000 ASA using handmade lenses. Uh, Go figure. I mean, thank God we didn't put a dinosaur in the set. That's all I can say. Because you know we'd have had a job tracking that on handmade lenses on a thousand ASA, just FYI. And these are our Ari Mini, Ari Mini bags, right? So there's pretty good sensor, but you know, still, there's a great deal of kind of uh, oh, that's all it. It's all going to be digital. You know, it's all going to be virtual. It'll be easy. No, it's not easy. None of it's easy. Uh, VR is not easy. It's really hard, actually, hard, much harder than you think it is. The fact that the processor can do it in half the time makes it appear to the general public that we can do it at the drop of a hat, but it really, really isn't. It really is not easy. And uh, rendering in 3D has got harder. It's quicker, but a lot harder, a lot more complex now to render in 3D, and a lot more subtly in shaders and stuff. I mean, uh, so, you know, where's it going to go? Interesting. Like, like I just said, Netflix, who are very much at the bleeding edge of this, do not want to send 57 people on a recce. They want, they want you to come back, three people on a recce, having lidar the cathedral and lidar the square in Cadiz, and come back and explain to the rest of the production where everything is and walk them through the alleyways to where the production base is going to be and what you're going to do, and then show them how you're going to augment it digitally. That, that's, in some ways, the future. Why are we spending all this money in the movie business and all this carbon offset? Uh, all the carbon costs of, of taking all these people everywhere. Uh, the movie-making business is a very, very bad business for the planet mm. in many ways. Yeah. You know, so, so what we're doing on the ground is things like all the wood used in production has to, has to be certified, recycled. You know, it has to be. Uh, we did it on Avenue 5. Warners have a blanket policy on all this from Leaves and Studios that every single bit of waste has to be recycled as far as it possibly can. You know, that's... That's the kind of future for how technology is helping us do our stuff. And I think what you also might see is that, I mean, there is has always been that, you know, prevailing thing of fix it in post. We can just do it in VFX. And I think, you know, as technologies develop, there's even more of that with not necessarily the level of, well, I mean, it's quite a blanket statement, but not necessarily the understanding on a lot of people of what that takes and how much that costs and how long it will actually, you know, sort of take to do that. And I think because all of that technology and opportunity is there, everyone just thinks, okay, great, we'll just put a comedy show in space and the VFX are incidental. But that's not really the case. You know, you can you write gags that are funny, but if those gags rely on CG, that's a big budget and time implication. And so it's kind of that chicken egg thing of it becomes easier because it is, because technology is developing and people's knowledge is growing and it is kind of getting cheaper-ish, but then also then everyone's expectation levels grow and everyone's need and everyone wants grow. And so you're kind of at the same place because everyone's expecting so much, but actually they don't want to pay for it or they don't want to schedule for it. And it's, I mean, it's the perpetual issue that like people like Simon and I have on the production side where it's just expectation versus reality, basically. And then we basically take that and put that on Nick because Nick will quote, quote something 
And I'm like, oh, they won't pay that. So, <laughs> or that's that's too expensive. So you go, you have the real quote and then you have the actual quote that goes to client and then you have Nick being like, well, we don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> we can't do it yeah. in that time. Well, I think we'll maybe end by asking each of you to comment on your favourite scenes from Avenue 5. Can we do that? Do you have a favourite scene? Um... Can you talk about it without being triggered? <laughs> can you talk no. about it as, a, as a, Can you detach yourself from it? Can I start it? weeping? Yeah. Um, uh, Favourite scene. Uh, it, I thought in episode one, the work that Nick and his team did in the conference room, uh, when they discover that they're going to be knocked off course, and then they have a, they have a, a Skype conversation, uh, effectively, or whatever conversation it is in 40 years in the future, with Mission Control, uh, I I all I always like that partly because it's one of the first things we really got our hands dirty with, and partly because it was so exquisitely executed, mm. even though you'd never know it. Um, it was brilliantly executed that scene, and it was funny and it was seamless and and beautiful. Uh, uh, that's one of my favourite scenes. The the other one of which uh, is one of my favourite is when Frank is looking outside the window at the shit uh, that's outside his first class cabin, and um, and uh, he, he's calling his wife, who's on the other floor with Captain Ryan. And uh, he, he says, honey, I feel trapped. And the shit's outside his window. And we cut to a beautiful shot outside made by Cinesite, bless them, who did a stunning shot of this arc of shit right outside <laughs> his cabin window and managed somehow to get him squeezed in on the, a very oblique angle in his cabin. It tied the whole scene together. And uh, his wife says, honey, we're all trapped. And uh, I just thought that was just... A most beautiful uh, drama moment for me. But anyway. Um. Um, oh, and the shuttle, oh. by the way. Oh, yeah. Shuttle. Oh, take, shuttle. I mean, just a thing <laughs> of beauty. Can I just That's say? That's a big technicolor shot. That's why we're all very excited about it. Um, I would say... The I mean, shuttle I've, shot? Yeah, the shuttle shot. The, just that. Just those 40 frames or however long it is. Um, there's a very funny scene in Ryan's cabin. There's basically this whole conceit about a um, beep that goes off semi-regularly I mean that whole episode is probably my favourite because I think that's really funny but there is a very funny episode uh, moment in Ryan's cabin when it's just it's just a big ensemble scene it's um, it's the one where Doug wanders out and no one knows that he's there yeah. and it's just it's quite hard to describe but it's just the, the comic timing on that and it's just got a lot of all the really key funny people and um, yeah I should remember because we watch a lot of scenes on repeat and so a lot of the time you just kind of, it washes over you. But every time I watch that scene, I think I laughed. And that's episode six. Tis. Beep? The beep, yeah, the episode, episode six. episode six, yeah. yeah. I, th I think yeah, the, the whole thing was good to work on because it was, because it's funny. And yeah. you do sit there watching things over and over again and it's uh, it's good to uh, keep yourself entertained. Um, my favourite scene is when everything starts to go wrong and Captain Ryan comes into the it's back in the conference room and he he loses it basically and, and accidentally speaks uh, in an English yeah. accent because it, it's when it starts to unravel that he's actually not a captain he's just an actor and he's not American and he's not American <laughs> <laughs> and just he's, are you Australian yeah, yeah. he goes like, no I'm British well, like well, well that's even worse <laughs> what was that funny thing he started going <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, any scene yeah. where he's switching between American and British yeah. and then Judd's That's also funny. in the room is mm. is very good as well. Yeah. 
sounds like a perfect end point to, <laughs> to, to level off. Avenue 5, episodes 1 to 9, are now all available to watch on HBO and Sky One. Uh, Simon, Nick, Kate, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.